painful, but it wasn't exactly as he intended it to be. Right? Like last week George said, like the, the hope, the goal was that the people would come up to the mountain and become holy and priests, but they were afraid, and in their conscience, they couldn't bring themselves to come before God, and so God had to come up with ways to impress upon them who he still is. And we really get this, these Ten Commandments, or these ten words that are given, these utterances that are given to the people. And as we were prepping for this week, you know, we're going to do half of the, the Ten Commandments this week, and we're going to do the second half next week, just because it felt like we really need to give them some of their kind of due time to kind of look at, because as evangelicals, and just probably modern Christians, we have a really weird relationship with the Ten Commandments, or just with the law in general. It's such a culturally well-known idea, right? Charlton Heston movie, and like we know, we know the Ten Commandments, but if we're honest, we actually really don't know the Ten Commandments. I mean, I tried. I failed to get them. I got all ten, but I didn't get them in the right order when I had to like guess, what are the first five of the Ten Commandments? Um, right? We, I quizzed my family. Nobody in my family could get the first five right. Everybody could get them roughly, but not in the right order. And just even, you know, within the church, you know, we were talking about music for this week, and everyone's like, oh, Googling, what are the first five commandments? It's like, whoa, we have been Christians our whole lives, and we don't really know what the Ten Commandments are. And then it gets even harder as you start to look into different traditions. Like if you, if you were raised Lutheran, you have a different ten than if you were raised Catholic, or even if you were raised Presbyterian, depending on if you lump together the images with the first command, and that's all one commandment, or if you break up the coveting into multiple commandments, and like, this is confusing. And so we do have this really kind of weird dynamic when it comes to God's law, where we have a high revere for it. We, we respect God's law. We respect the Old Testament. We respect and want laws. But then, especially as modern readers, we also have a tendency to fight against law and to not take them very seriously or to kind of get the big idea and then just move on and not see a need to look at these again. And so as we're approaching the Ten Commandments, there's a few things we really need to get out there right at the front of it. And really it is this understanding of what's God's intention behind these. The intention of the Ten Commandments, it's not rules that they need to follow to get out of slavery. These are not Here's 10 rules that if you follow this, you will be delivered from slavery. Right? That's not their intent. Rather, these are directions that are given to a people who are free. They have been set free. This is, this is not a, the systems to follow to experience freedom, but rather how to stay a free people. Really, because when you look at the options on the table for Israel, because this is constantly coming up through the Exodus, They have two choices. They can live as free people who have been set free by God, or they can go back to slavery in Egypt. And they keep wanting to go back to slavery. And God keeps telling them, no, I have freed you. Live as my people who I have set free. And so when you get to these commandments, right, this is not, again, these things you have to follow to experience freedom. They have freedom. This is God's words to his people to bring them, to show them who he is, and to remind them of their freedom. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
That's how this starts. And even the word commandment isn't in the text, right? If you, read it, if you look at it again, these are the words of God to his people. Humanity is in desperate need, as we are too. Right? Throughout the Exodus, we've seen this. God's intention was to take his people to himself and to make them holy. That you will know that I am the Lord your God that you would love me, and that I would dwell with you, right? He brought them out into the desert so that they could worship God and God could be with his people. But again, humanity continues to reject God. His people continue to grumble and complain. They grumble and complain 10 times through this whole ordeal. And God comes to his people then with 10 words, you need to be reminded. I need to impress upon you who I am, and I need to remind you of who you are. So that when we get to the Ten Commandments, we need to see them as God's way of showing his people ultimately who he is and how his intention is to make them holy. The commandments are how God is going to impress upon his people, himself upon his people, for generations and generations. Right? The Ten Commandments are not a list of rules to follow which is a very popular conception. Like all of a sudden, God gave rules to his people because he was mad with them. No, God speaks words of love to his people to impress upon them who he is and what he intends for them to live as a free people. So then if we start to actually look at these commandments in light of God's intention of what it reveals about God, not necessarily as rules that we need to follow, right? they're really quite profound. If you look at that first commandment that's given in verse 3, you shall have no other gods, or another way of putting it, you shall have no other, or you shall have no strange gods before me or beside me. It's really this picture of, right, of you should have Yahweh. Yahweh should be your God, and any other God is just strange, right? You are never intended to be worshiping or to have a different God alongside of this God. There is one God who you are to have. There's no other God in this world that could satisfy you the way that Yahweh does, right? It's just like in a marriage, it would be strange to bring in another spouse, which is, again, what the Israelites are going to do and keep getting reminded that that's not, that's strange, that's wrong, that's you were meant for this. And so God right away impresses upon his people, right? You are to have no other gods, meaning no other God will ever satisfy you the way that I do. You are not meant for any other God but me. And the moment you bring in into our marriage some other God, everything's going to go downhill. And it really is true. Like Luther talks about how like, it's the first commandment. Once you break the first commandment, everything else falls like dominoes, right? The moment I worship something else as God or I bring another God into the marriage bed, right, then things run into trouble, right? If I start to worship money, if I start to worship power, if I start to worship my family, if I start to worship anything, right? And the, the amount of gods on the table are endless. If you think of them too, they have no shortage of gods that they could be worshiping, we're going to find out through the Pentateuch later on, I mean, very soon in the narrative, how they have brought with them from Egypt the gods of Egypt. These small, you know, they're carrying around these gods still. They believe in Yahweh, but they still bring in 
all these other things that they worship, that they hope, they hope in, and they ultimately always disappoint us. Because once we look to something other than God, to something strange, and really from, an, from that outside perspective, if the Bible is true, it is so strange that we would worship anything other than Yahweh. Why would we worship a different God? Why would I put my hope in that? Of course it's going to disappoint me and lead me to slavery because it's not Yahweh. Right? But we have this tendency to always be looking for and worshiping anything else but Yahweh as our sustainer and deliverer. But once we do, we begin down that path of transgressions, right? Then we start to act out, and we demand, and we grumble, we complain, we sin, once we worship a different God. So that first commandment, you should have no other gods, is really this. Any other God is just strange and foreign to this relationship. It's not going to work out. Don't even do it. You were made for one God. You were made for Yahweh. The second commandment, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth or to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Because of who Yahweh is, the way in which we worship him matters. He needs to impress upon his people. Just knowing my name, just knowing who I am is not enough. But also, the way we worship has long-lasting ramifications for generations. If it can be depicted, it isn't God. Right? If you can make an image, that's not me. Anything in this created world, it, none of it's me. If you can see it, that's not who I am, God is saying. Don't worship it. You should have no forms of worship in which it's a contrary or a counterfeit version of me. Counterfeit worship of God is worthless. And God is calling his people to look honestly at the way that they approach God. And the reason that God speaks to his people, the reason that this counterfeit worship or improper worship is to be avoided is because it doesn't produce holiness. It doesn't overcome transgression or sin. It sounds very like Paul in the New Testament, like in Colossians, you know, like the religion has this appearance of godliness and all these things, but it doesn't help you overcome sin, which is really true. It's going to be true for Israel all of their history. It's true for us. I mean, there's, it's incredible Israel's propensity and our own to really worship God in very selfish ways, that our worship ultimately is not because we fear God or have this awe of who God is, but we have a desire within ourselves to feel better, and we worship in that way, or in a way that is familiar to us, or a way that makes, that eases our own conscience, which becomes ultimately very selfish and very promoting of self-righteousness. We're going to see Israel do this continually, creating altars, setting up gods, even to Yahweh, but wrongly, altars and things, because you just want to worship. I want to worship God. I want to clean my conscience. I want to just do this. And God is saying to his people, right, the way you worship me, you should don't worship me like you worship every other God in this world. I am not like, don't you remember the first commandment? I am not like any God. So I can't be worshipped like every other God is worshipped. 
If you're worshiping me in the same way that everyone else worships their gods, you are not worshiping me. Worship on our terms and in our own selfish ways will have long-lasting consequences. And there's a really strong warning in here, right, that this idolatry, this selfish worship will produce long-lasting effects to the third and to the fourth generation, right? It, this matters. And if we're really honest about just even the history of Christianity in America, Christianity around the world, wrong worship has lasting consequences. How the church worships God, how his people revere him or don't revere him, how they approach him matters. And it does affect the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. But even within that warning of the long-lasting consequences, God gives his promise of redemption and hope that even if you worship me wrongly, the consequences will not be forever. They will only last four generations. What other God is like that? No other God promises redemption from wrong worship. So again, it's not even this, like, if you worship me wrongly, you'll be condemned forever until you fix it and get it right. There will be consequences for sin, there'll be consequences for this, but it won't last forever. And God's redemption will still come, and he will correct and bring his people. No other God promises grace in the face of generational sin, right? I mean, because maybe it feels like you're just stuck in generations and generations of patterns and sin, but God says, I will not leave you there as my people. No other gods before me, no images of God, meaning this wrong worship of God. And then the third command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, these first three commands are really kind of a God warning the people of this picture of worshiping God wrongly. Right? Don't confuse me with other gods. Don't worship me like other gods. Don't call on my name like I am at your beck and call. Don't just call on me whenever you feel like it to bail you out of whatever situations you're in. I am not like the gods of Egypt. I am not like the other gods who you can just make a sacrifice to and try to get me on your side. Don't be so confident when you utter my name. Right? That's really what this third command is. Right? This don't God doesn't exist to serve you, right? God doesn't exist to serve us. It's very easy to kind of treat God as our personal genie, as someone who's just always there to answer us, right? No, right? They're really, the impression that he's trying to get on them is, right, I am not to be treated like that. I am to be feared. You are to be in awe of me, in worship of me. It calls into question Israel's orientation to God and how they treat him. It calls into question our orientation to God, how we speak of God, how we speak to God, when our prayer life, our worship, all of these things. And so if we really sum up these first three commands, right? I mean, it is, it is strong and striking. Yahweh is trying to impress upon his people, these people that are scared to go up to the mountain. God speaks to them and says, there is no one like me anywhere. There's no other God like me. Don't worship me like other gods. Don't expect me to act like other gods. 
vengeful, you need to satisfy, you need to appease, you need to say the right magic words. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt and who set you free. You don't need to do all of the things, jump through all the hoops that all the other gods expect of you. You are to just worship me for who I am, that I am the God who created you, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who is with you. Fear me. Right? It's, it's profound. And there's no positive yet of like, this is what you have to do. Just this is what not to do. Don't think of me like all the other gods. And it's easy for us to do that. We, we impress upon God these pictures of him that are just not true of who he is. Israel is doing it, we do it, and we have all these expectations and fears about God that are just not true to his character or who he is, and he has to impress the truth of himself upon his people. And then we get to commands four and five, the two positive words that God gives his people. So here's what not to do, those first three. Don't worship me like the other gods, because I'm not like them. Here's what to do. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This is our, this positive direction that God gives to his people, and it's very extensive, right? It, six days of work, one day of nothing. And it seems like an odd, this is it, don't worship me, instead, take a day off. What God works this way? <laughs> it, it is a surprise. This is not how God's, you would expect God's to treat people. Take one day off. And it really is there to learn from that lesson they've been learning about the manna, right? That they were to collect the manna, but then not on the seventh day. And it, it really is to impress upon them and to their people, to their children, to future generations, really who provides, who supplies, and really a worldview-shifting idea that the world is one of plenty, not scarcity. Can you imagine that? I mean, because they are in the desert. It'd be very easy to feel like this world, there's not enough to go around. If I don't work every day, if I don't maximize my time, I will not get enough. I will not have enough. Viewing the world as exist, everything exists in scarcity, right? We are cutthroat and we are hoarders. But if I viewed the world as plentiful, abundant, there are new mercies every day, God's grace is so good. His love is so, he will provide and he will continually provide and provide and provide and provide. It creates this generosity of spirit that Israel is supposed to embody as a people. A people that will be unlike any other people because their God is unlike any other God. They will be generous. They will rest and not try to maximize and work and work and work and work. There is a generosity in spirit, a generosity in life. And within this, take a day off, 
there's also a mindfulness with it, right? He tells the people to remember on that day. Remember. As a household, remember. Remember who God is. Remember what I have done for you. There's an intentionality to that day because it's through that mindfulness and through that remembering that, again, God's intention becomes clear. This isn't just to take a day off so you can go back to work energized. You take a day off so you become more holy, right? Like you are to make it holy. This is God's plan. His plan for making his people holy is that they would take one day a week and remember him and not try to save themselves or work and earn and build their kingdoms, but that one day a week they would just stop and rest and worship God. Which, for all of us, right, if we're really honest, this is so impossible or feels impossible because we're just out of practice. Israel won't practice this either. They're going to get this command this words, and they're not going to practice it. It's really hard to practice. And we have the same way. We hear these things, and we're like, yes, oh, I need rest. I would love to rest. But it's hard. It's really hard to rest and to trust and to worship. Leon Cass, you know, and he gets quoted a lot by George, you know, he gives this quote on the Sabbath here too, that, that here when God is telling us to not work on the Sabbath, we are not only permitted but we are, in fact, obliged regularly to cease the life of toil, sorrow, and loss and to accept instead the godlike possibility of quiet, rest, wholeness, and peace of mind. It's not an option. Like, hey, you, sh- you should once a week enter into that kind of rest that God gives you. We're obliged to. God wants us to enter into a godlike rest and which makes us holy. Again, what God works this way. This is the command. You should not work, and you should let me work for you, and you should rest in my provision and my care for you as a people. Do this regularly, and you will become more holy. No, right? No, you expect a God to tell you to work harder for them, to make sacrifices to them, to do things, to earn, to work, to work, to work, to work, to work. Yahweh says, no, you are to rest. And then that fifth command in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the only other positive word that gets uttered here. We are to worship one day a week, to rest, and we are to give honor to our mothers and our fathers, which is actually pretty shocking when you think culturally, even today. This is not something that comes natural. It's certainly not something that came natural then as well. We give honor and praise to heroes, right? We put up on pedestals the heroes of our culture and our world, the warriors, the athletes, the earners, the, you know, the CEOs. The, these are the people who are deserving of honor. Mom and dad, that's just so ordinary. They don't deserve any honor. But God, again, is redirecting us, redirecting his people to see really this resting, ordinary household life is what God has intended for you and where honor and glory is truly going to be found. It's going to be within your home. It's going to be within the family. 
honoring the family. Honor and holiness. We'll see this as the Pentateuch goes in Deuteronomy. Moses is going to utter these same words again to the people and give more instruction and tell them, you know, this is it. The home is going to be the training ground of holiness. This is it. Parents, impress upon your children who Yahweh is. This is it. It's going to be within this context. It's within a family that God is going to be working out his plans and purposes to the world. Which again, you're like, no, 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 not through a mom and a dad. God is going to work out his plans and purposes through the strong, through the powerful, through great leaders, through, you know, a Moses. That's who I should respect and honor. Right? That would make a more clear utterance. It'd be like, Israel, you should respect Moses and Aaron. You should respect Joshua. Respect your leader who is God has put in front of you. Respect your mom and dad. Right? This holiness, this submission, this love will start within this everyday life. So what are we to say about this God? Right? I mean, this is the point. In the commandments, in these, these words that God is uttering, he's, he's showing his people who he is. And when we look at this, right, we are just struck, as Israel would have been struck too, with who this God is. There is no God like Yahweh. There's just none. No God who has the power and the majesty of him. If, if we are worshiping anything else, it pales in comparison to the true God that, who created us and who made us to worship him. And there is no God like him who provides for his people and who has such wisdom for living than this God. And we can rebel against it, we can doubt it, we can work against it, but it's, this is his plan and his purpose and who he is, and he impresses that upon us. And now what do these commands say about us? Because again, this wasn't necessarily the plan all along, was to give these orders, to give these words, right? It is in a response to what Israel has been doing, the grumbling and complaining and their pattern of behavior, which is the same as our pattern of behavior. What does it say about us? It says that we are always going to have a tendency to look to immediate physical things to sustain us and to make us happy, to give us a good life. We're always going to, it's going to be this tendency of the human heart. Israel has it. We have it. The same heart, right? I know there is Yahweh, but man, work really does make me feel good. And, you know, I know that, but boy, I really do love my family a lot. And we're always going to cling on to some physical thing that we can touch and feel and see to sustain us, to satisfy us, to make us happy. And it's always going to let us down, just like God's saying. That's so strange. Why would you worship a strange God like that? That's not me, and you know it's not me. And you will worship me wrongly, and you will suffer the consequences of it, but not forever. And we're also going to have this tendency, if he's got to direct us to take one day off, then and to respect our parents, that it means we also have a tendency within us to not want to take a day off, which is really true, right? We, this is a really hard thing. We have a very strong feeling of God helps those who helps himself, you know, as this idea of good Christians, good followers are those who work hard and who are earning and working and showing and doing and to actually take time off is a really hard thing. Well, or to take time off properly. Because right? some of us are fine taking time off 
And in fact, we slide into laziness, but not time off in the terms of what God is giving the Sabbath rest, which is mindful worship of God, reflecting on his grace and his goodness for a day. I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't sound like just watching Netflix all day or playing video games or napping, you know, while watching football or something. You know, that's the way the world rests, but it's not how God rests, and it's not the way he made us to rest. And so we're always going to have that competing within us, this counterfeit worship that God calls us not to do. And the world is going to give us tons of ways that we can worship God in a counterfeit way. But it also offers us all kinds of counterfeit rests, too. Do this. This is how you rest. This is self-care. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And neither produces holiness. All right, we're going to see the fruit very easily of these efforts. Because while they have the appearance of wisdom, while they look religious, they don't produce any holiness. They don't produce righteousness, which was what God's intention was, that his people would become righteous. Israel was to follow God's instruction because they knew who he was. And we are in the same place. If we know who God is, we worship him properly. If Israel knew who God is and is reminded of who he is, they will worship properly. If we know who God is, we will worship properly. Again, it's not, I have to worship properly. I have to do all these things to know God. I have to do all these things to experience freedom or joy. I have been set free. I'm a free people. (laughs) And if I remember that, if I remember who God is, if I know the God who set me free, I will experience more and more of that fruit and the joy of this life that God has called me to growing in holiness. And on this side of the Pentateuch, right? Because Jesus Christ, if you think about Christ, God actually came so that we could know him in a way that the Israelites didn't have. Now, they, they could. They had the pillars, they had the fire, they had the smoke, they had these. But we have Jesus Christ. God became a man and lived in this world so that we could know God. We know him. He has fulfilled the law. Not in that it was a standard we had to live up to, but he fulfilled it as in he fully demonstrated to us the character and nature of Yahweh and so that we could be in relationship with God and know him. And because I know him, we get to follow his words. We get to follow in these commandments. We get to pursue the life that he has promised us. We were created to know God, not just follow laws. Right? It gets back to that tension we always have whenever we get to lists and laws in the Bible. Because we have this incredibly religious heart that wants to hear ten things and say, fine, I'll follow those ten things. But even that, God is like, no, 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 you don't understand. It doesn't have to be ten things. You just grumbled ten times. I'm trying to make a point. You just need to fear me. You just need to worship me. That's what I'm trying to impress upon you. If you knew me, if you loved me, you would worship me properly. The point of the law is to draw us to know who God is and to worship God properly. We are a free people that want to stay free. And so I pursue God's law because it gives life and it gives freedom. Which, though, is going to require some effort and work on our part. Right? The New Testament, the whole Bible is very clear on this. 
You worship Yahweh, that is great. You worship God, that is good. Jesus died for you. But to experience that freedom, to live in that freedom, to live in that state requires effort, requires mindfulness, requires, really like the law is giving, stop your work and worship God. Remember who I am. Show honor to my plans and my purposes. Respect what I have for you. We need to be reminded of the God that we worship, right? Because we are a forgetful people. Just like Israel was, we are just as forgetful. We need to be called out from our false worship and from our false rest, our counterfeit versions of those things. And we constantly need to be corrected and called back to following God. We need a lot less arrogance, right, as modern Christians, and a lot more humility and fear and awe that God is trying to impress upon us. I am Yahweh. Stop treating me like all these other strange gods. And we need to rely a lot less on ourselves, and we need a lot more rest and trust in our lives. We need this daily wholehearted living that George has been talking about throughout the Pentateuch. I mean, this is really what, he is tr- what the Pentateuch is trying to get across to the people. And as the uh, same to us, what Christ gives to us is the same. A way of living that is just honest with God. I see who you are, Lord, and I trust you. I need you, and I can't do this on my own. A way of life where we have these rhythms in place, these reminders in place to remind us continually, because we need to be reminded continually, continually of who God is and of who we are, and that he is, the, he is the God who created all things and who creates me, the only sustainer and deliverer that I have. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your words. Lord, we thank you for your love for us as your people Lord, we thank you that you are not like any other God. Lord, we do confess to you how often, though, we treat you with with contempt, ultimately, Lord, how we treat you like a run-of-the-mill God, because we treat you as if you exist at our beck and command, as if you exist to meet our needs, Lord, we we confess our improper worship of you, our improper resting in you. Lord, it's just, it's so easy to rely on ourselves. Lord, it's just, it's so easy to turn from you. But Lord, again, who are we that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die for us? Lord, that you would not hold that against us, our wavering hearts and our wavering worship. Lord, that you do not visit that punishment upon us anymore, but that your son took that upon himself for us. Lord, we pray that you will strengthen us, strengthen us in hope and in confidence, knowing that you love us and that you care for us, that you are not against us, Lord, but rather that you have freed us and you have freedom for us. Lord, strengthen us to follow your word, to pursue you, to know you more. Lord, give us wisdom and strength and courage that we need to be able to identify in our own lives the areas where we need uh, to pursue you more 
and to pursue our, our own self and our own selfish ambitions less. Uh, Lord, so we can experience holiness and righteousness more. Lord, we do really long to become more like you and to experience you more and more on a daily level. Uh, Lord, you are like water in the desert. Uh, Lord, we have tasted and seen and experienced you. So Lord, we want to experience you more and more. Uh, So Lord, continue to strengthen us and call us towards you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.